0: Hi, and welcome to a small medium at large podcast. I'm your host Gail Heisen bringing you intimate stories that heal. I just want to put a shout out there to thank you for all the people that have been listening, liking, subscribing, sending really wonderful thoughtful comments and please keep going. We are growing our audience. We're over 700 subscribers now and we're really happy to be bringing you different stories from different people from all over. So today, our special guest is Kay Rothman. Kay is a founding member of the Producer Guilds of America East. Kay Rothman develops, writes, directs, and produces documentaries, science, technology, lifestyle, social justice, and arts programs for broadcasters, such as Amazon Prime, PBS, National Geographic, Discovery, NBC, A&E, the History Channel, the Food Network, the World Science Festival, and the Climate Reality Project, which was founded by Nobel Laureate and former Vice President Al Gore. Kay recently produced The Curse of Lizzie Borden and A Haunting, both for Discovery+. Plus. She is currently producing It Couldn't Happen Here, a true crime social justice series for the Sundance TV and AMC+. Plus. Also in production for the future is Deep Down, a darkly comedic future tech scripted series for multi-platform distribution based on an original graphic novel. So let's welcome Kay here today. Hi, Kay.
1: Hello, my dear. I,
0: I know do- it's cold in New York, right? It is. I pulled out my sweater. <laughs> So I, I I I often start with the history of the person and how I met them. And so I just thought we'd just say a few minutes about how our friendship began, which was 2008. You were responsible for a show called The Brain. And I believe you were working with um, a production crew from England. And wow, good you memory. Sent, you were sent out to... Um, You were were in charge of sending out film crews, and you sent one out to the Institute of Noetic Sciences to film Dean Radin, I believe, and uh, things that were going on and the experiments and things that were being conducted about the brain at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And you asked me to send you stories, which I had sent you a whole bunch of stories. And I know we did an incredible amount of filming, and only a few little snippets made it into the to the show. But I was still happy to be on. Believe it aired on the History Channel, and it was uh, a two
1: hour special on the History Channel, right? Yes. And Dean actually, Dean, he was lovely. Um, I we had two producers on it. I was there was one producer that was doing sort of the um, the more uh, vile, it was about the, the brain, the cutting edge, um, experiences on the brain. So one producer was doing things like what happens to the brain when you're jumping out of a plane and your parachute doesn't open or whatever. And we, and we were, um, dividing up stories and I, Gravitated towards all the sort of the consciousness, near death experience kind of stories, and uh, the other producer was doing the what happens when you're trapped in a car accident and you're deprived of oxygen, what happens to brain then? And I contacted Dean, who I didn't know, but I had through the research uh, founding institute, and he said you really ought to talk to the person who is the most shockingly capable, gifted story subject I've ever encountered in my career. Wow. And I said, okay. And that was you. (laughs) And he
0: was right. uh, I I wasn't sorry. (laughs) Well, I wanna add to it that we sort of had a, a really wonderful experience from this. Because even though you were not out here filming, you got to see all the filming of the stories that I did tell, even though they weren't actually on the show, you got to watch that. And so I remember that we suggested, like, let's have lunch together next time I visit my family in New York. And you and I met at this little restaurant for some delicious food. And in the middle of the conversation, as we're talking, I say to you, so so where did you grow up? And you say, oh, Rye, New York. And I say, oh, my sister lives in Ryebrook. I said, she's the principal of the Hebrew school. And you said to me, I think she must work with my father. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, there might be some other school. She said, well, no. You said, actually, there's the only school there. And my father built it for me as a child. (laughs) I said, you're kidding. And I think at the lunch, you called your father. I called my sister. And we both confirmed that. Your father had been my sister's boss for many, many years.
1: 40 so years. So I, I, right.
0: I had actually heard of your father before ever meeting you and would have never known if we didn't just bring up the idea of, oh, so you grew up in Ryebrook? So there in our lunch, I felt we had a whole nother bond that was just so sweet and special. And I, I just wow. cherished that story of how we got connected in that moment. And it's now 2000. 22 and that was back in 2008 and we've kept up a very lovely connection over all these years so i'm so thankful that you were a producer and somebody that i got to meet through an interview and i'm grateful to know you too so that's been a very happy happy story i had to share so now i want to go to your life and find out first of all as a child when you were growing up like i find that there are some people who know their passion like my cousin lisa She knew when she was eight she was going to be an artist, and she's been an artist her entire life, has never deviated off the path. I still haven't found my, what I'm going to do yet. (laughs) And I never had any, you know, I didn't know when I was, when I was a child, my only fantasy was I'd be an actress, and that never happened, so (laughs) I was wondering what, what, what led you to this, what was the, the pivotal moment that you said, and this is what I'm going to do? Because this has been your career for over 20 years and you have such an incredible amount of, of stories and venues of things that you've done. They're, they're paranormal, they're scientific, they're food, they're, 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 they're social justice, climate change. You have not pegged yourself into one thing like I only do this kind of television production. So what what happened as a child that made you decide to do this? Or was it when you were an adult that you decided?
1: Uh, There's a long answer. (laughs) Good. And then there's a shorter answer. Um, So the kind of work that I do stemmed from my interest in science Mm -hmm. And as an undergraduate, I went to college a bit earlier than the kids my age. And as an undergraduate, I gravitated towards um, experimental psychology, which was a very strong uh, department at the school that I went to. And my father had said, you know, don't worry about the what you major in, find a professor that you really admire and then um, keep taking those that person's courses because that will help you become a, a student, a, a student of life because mm-hmm. the intention was that I would go on to graduate school um, which I did. And so the professor that I really connected with was an experimental psychology professor and it was, it was really uh, a good experience. Um, and it seemed like a circuitous route as I was living it, but now looking back, it, it, it makes sense, the path. But um, at, at, at some point in my adult life, I ended up producing nonfiction television and uh, gravitated towards science because I understood um, the basics of scientific research, scientific study. And so that enabled me to do science interviews, at the research and the interviews without stumbling uh, like some other producers. And so I got hired over and over to do the science interviews, which were interesting to me. Scientists are my heroes. And so that created a a sort of a a foundation of work that built on itself. Um, The through line of my career is that it's primarily nonfiction, which means it uh, is based on real stories, real people. Um, and it's the the production aspect of it is generally more nimble. It's a smaller group when people say, oh, the film came to town and they've got seven 40 foot trucks and the stars <laughs> and the, you know, that's a big footprint and producing for feature films or for scripted television, as you call it, um, a lot of that producing is about Resource management, food. how do you feed 200 people in the desert of Morocco? Or uh, how do you move? How do you do a company move? Or where do you get the permits for the cars? And I really was interested in the people uh, mm-hmm. th- that it was about. And so I found that when I did long form news, which is what I did pretty early on, and PBS nonfiction news magazine. I'd be in a a van with a couple of other people, and we'd go to where those people existed, lived, where their stories were, and get to experience a bit of their life. And um, I really love that part. I love called people. the field production. Uh, that is right. So that would that piece of it is field production, meaning out in the field, as opposed to say uh in the studio studio production or um now scripted and non-scripted fiction non-fiction the 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 definitions have sort of blurred a little bit and we'll see in a lot of nonfiction there will be what's called recreations which are like little mini movies that are intercut that are cast and sets are built and they're scripted like a a feature film a short feature film so that um a haunting the, the the project that I did recently is what I call a hybrid. So it, it starts with a real story, real people. Um, we do the interviews with those real people, and then we intercut with those interviews, what we call recreations, which are reenacted or recreated because what the interviewee is talking about is something that happened in the past. And in the, in the case of this series, they were stories that happened. Um, so in order to have a TV show, you need to do more than just see a person saying, well, this happened and this happened. So we intercut these little mini movies with the interviews. Uh, but that's not all.
0: There are other shows like... Um, I just want to interrupt for one second. Yeah. That second. I've watched every episode so far of season um, 11. 11 of A Haunting. Yeah. So there's been six episodes that I've completed, and I'm looking forward to the one this Friday at 10 p.m. For any of you who are listening, don't miss this. And, and that's um, on the Discovery Channel, or is it Discovery Plus?
1: So um, the, the season finale airs on March 4th. March 4th. Uh, every Friday night from New Year's Eve, a new episode drops simultaneously on Discovery Plus. So the streaming venue and the travel channel because they're uh, affiliated companies. Um, so you can either watch it through your regular TV set as a broadcast on travel or Discovery Plus, which is streamed. And then you can watch them, uh, once it airs, they're, they're available to watch again and again. So every Friday night, um, a new one airs and the season finale is March 4th. And well, that was this, particularly that, that, scary the one. The
0: finale will be uh, two days after our show. Great. So whoever's great. listening, you can catch up on all the other episodes because they're streaming and you can watch the finale uh in real time on friday
1: right but if you're Uh, interested go back and watch the other ones yes well whenever i want
0: to say about it is that for me somebody who has had medium experiences and is psychic and has connected to these kind of stories even though i don't experience them as the horror like that they like to present it to you know the tv to see the reenactments and then have you interview the the same the, the actual people i loved that part of 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 a hauntings because you're seeing them you're seeing who's reenacting and you're getting right from them this feeling like what you're showing is exactly what they experienced and that's not an easy thing when you're someone who has like myself experienced you know negative energy or dark forms or different experiences where your hair is standing up. To be able to portray that in TV is not an easy thing because we're talking about something that's sort of invisible. Right. For you to be able to do that and I have to say when I watched the one about the, the people in Chicago I mean, I look, I'm looking at them, saying, wow, I've had this experience, you know what I'm, so I'm looking at them, and it is very, it's really very real, what you're showing is not in the reenactments and the people is really what goes on in these situations. So I right. feel like that's a really positive thing about sharing what is going on, because some people are left with a lot of fear, some people are willing to face it and move on, some are too afraid to go back in their house again. But I'm just saying, having this, you know, for some, for other viewers that aren't, um, you know, like necessarily mainstream, it's a very, it's a very wonderful thing to see reenactments of things I've experienced. So I I think you're, I think you're doing a very good job with that, with that reenactment part. And we have a
1: big team that, that works on, on that, Um, you know, it's a challenge this particular series happens to be one that is focused on darkness Mm -hmm. and that's the nature of the series that i inherited this is the first season i'm working on it and we we did want to focus more on the psychological aspects of it rather than the um blatant horror uh aspect of it and i i think we we did succeed in uh, in the stories this this year, but it's a challenge because the people that I'm speaking to, and when you see the real people talking, to, they're 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 to looking at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm behind the camera and I'm asking the question, <laughs> and they're talking to me. Um, their trauma is real, and what they experience is, in many instances life-changing and desperately scary as well as other things and many of the people and the families we spoke with actually came through these experiences and look back on them as blessings that they were challenges but they got self-knowledge the bonds with the family grew stronger some old generational wounds were healed. Um, it's not unlike what I try to do in the work that I do with social justice, where I'm dealing with um, forced marriage and child brides that has nothing to do with paranormal, but uh, it also involves trauma, generational trauma through families, people struggling, coming out the other the other side. Um,
0: No, that the episode I just watched where um, I'm very bad at remembering names, but it was the episode where uh, the woman goes back to the childhood house she grew up in, even after remembering as a child, she had scary experiences there.
1: Right, she had no
0: choice financially she she that was where she needed to go. And she faced an incredible amount of obstacles there. Um, I think. sharing this kind of a story helps for people who've maybe had the same other experiences going to visit a family or somebody that they know and they feel uncomfortable when they go in the house or they have feelings that are making them feel uncomfortable to be there and they want to leave. I'm wondering what happens to you when you've been doing all these and working with these, like, are there stories you can share of a personal nature about what it's like to interview people and listen to their story and then go home and you go to sleep at night and does any of their things come with you have you ever felt like any of the ghosts or the people in these shows have followed you home or have you know there are things that we call walk-ins where things can enter into your body some of the time and I, I'm for me I I've experienced some of this so it's very real to me but how was it for someone like you who that isn't, you know, you're doing all sorts of different things, but yet you have the one paranormal section. What happens when you do that kind of work?
1: Right. So in the last two years, that's really been the first time I've worked on what I call paranormal programming. So the, the project that I did where we met the history channel, it was really science. And in fact, um, I was, I was, uh, we, we research stories and then pitch them to the executive producer who then says, okay, this is going to be in the show. And I was constantly pitching what he described as woo woo stuff. <laughs> I thought that was interesting and near death experiences. And, um, I remember I, I pitched one and it was about a man and he, um, had a near death experience and he, uh. he he encountered beings of light and uh, his life was profoundly changed and he came back and was making music that reminded him of the harmonic convergences that he heard while he was, Mm -hmm. and the the executive producer, a lovely, lovely man, he um, he said, I love the story, but do we have to say beings of light? Like, well, yeah, that's the, I mean, that's, (laughs) that's the story that's why it's so cool um so that story didn't make it in and you know so i guess look paranormal just means outside the normal and a lot of what we call paranormal is just at that moment stuff we don't have science for yet Mm -hmm. I mean, we can now see with night vision glasses, we can see infrared, ultraviolet. We can take x-rays
0: and look inside people. We save people so that they come back from death now. That didn't used to happen and the information is all so similar. And I had near death when I was 21, giving birth to my daughter. And you were profoundly changed after that. And some people like to shut it down because they're too frightened by the, the experience. But the ones that have been willing to share, there are so many books and talks, It's it's hard for people not to believe that maybe we aren't going to such a terrible place when we die. Maybe it is such a, maybe it is being in the light because there's so much information coming back now that they couldn't do before. Right. So,
1: right. I mean, we're, what we're talking about a lot of the time when we're talking about paranormal, we're talking about different forms of consciousness. Yes. And we, if we subscribe to, Einstein's um, teaching that things don't, things, energy transforms, it doesn't disappear. If you look at brain thoughts, thoughts are electrical impulses. Electricity, is a kind of energy. So if we follow, this is very oversimplified and forgive me, but um, if an electrical impulse is in our brain and it gets to our skull and the skull, that impulse ends at our brain, that's that's not in line with transformation of it, right? So then, does that electrical impulse transform into some other kind of let's call it energy that extends beyond our physical brain and we just can't measure it yet Mm -hmm. i don't know but Look, a couple of years ago, when I was um, doing interviews with Nobel laureates at the World Science Festival, two weeks earlier, gravitational waves had just been uh, detected. Um, Gravitational waves in the galaxy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not uh, uh, an astrophysicist, but what they were explaining was that, the reverberation that the universe, it was proof that the universe is not empty. It's filled with a fabric of, I don't have a word for it. I'm sure an astrophysicist does. Um, And that these waves are like, if you drop a leaf on the, on a pond, the, the ripples out on the surface of the water reverberate out and the gravitational waves are proof that space isn't nothing, it's something. And we're just developing the science to detect it. Did those gravitational waves, did that space-time fabric exist before we could measure it? Of course, as did radio waves. Or gravity, before we could measure it. So is there consciousness that exists that we are unable yet to properly measure without a doubt with the instruments we have?
0: Well, uh, I think you know. the one I think didn't they measure that something happens? Uh, when you when you die, there's like there's the last breath, and it's often s- thought that the soul is leaving on that last breath and leaving the body. But I think isn't there some sort of scientific proof that the body weighs different or something? I can't remember what that yeah. was about.
1: Look, there's a lot of really interesting science now, <laughs> and um, these things kind of go in waves where it gets into the cultural zeitgeist and. Um, so extraterrestrial alien stuff started to happen in 1947 around the end of world war ii the the start of the cold war roswell the crash there i I did series on history channel on that there was this whole thing it was in this cultural zeitgeist and then for about 15 20 years then there was an ebb and we wanted uh Uh, facts. So, and then it it kind of goes in waves and the eighties and nineties were more about what, what can we see, touch, taste, prove. And now with, um, uncertainty and trauma in the world and on our planet, it's not surprising that we're also trying to, um, extend our ways of thinking. You know, it's interesting, Einstein again, he said, nothing can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. And I think that's interesting that it goes in waves because we now sort of boxed ourselves into a corner as humanity in a way. Um, We have some very dangerous tools at our disposal. We are behaving in ways that are destructive. The planet. The planet. And we have an opportunity to transform our existence, to stuff happens. We make decisions about how we respond to it Mm -hmm. as individuals and as communities and as the globe. And my belief is that we rise and fall together and that um, these moments of crisis are an opportunity for a groundswell of change. Change is scary, right? When we change the way we think about ourselves and our place in the world, it creates uncertainty, it's scary. I remember, you know, I said to my my family, I'm going to New York and I'm going to be in the arts. And I remember finishing graduate school and I was subletting an apartment, a walk up in a, anyway. And uh, I woke up on Monday morning and I thought, (laughs) okay, put up or shut up, go do it, go do it. And it was terrifying. And I really was, because no one in my family does this, I I didn't have an opportunity to be apprenticed. I really, I was making up my life as I was going.
0: And it was really
1: scary. But by the time I got down the five flights of stairs, I was in motion and it was okay. And here I am decades later and it, it's been okay, it, it, it's um, so we, we as, as a people are in one of those times where I think there's a lot of danger, but that may prompt people to take more risk for the better.
0: And would it be fair to say that you personally, your life personally, has changed in the way of thinking and knowledge because of these shows you've produced and the people that you've met. I mean, if you were doing stuff with the Al Gore uh, group and climate change, you must have learned phenomenal things about what's going on in climate change. So I'm thinking all of these different types of shows really bring you to who you are here today. You weren't just interested in it being a successful show. You were interested in the lives and the people you were interviewing on these shows. So I think you were being also affected in a personal level.
1: Yes, yes, no question. Since we said we can cut, can we cut for one second? All right, I'll be right back. Um,
0: So let me ask you, I didn't mean to interrupt, But let me ask you, um, was there a specific show or when you were doing this work, I I remember you telling me, I know that you come from a religious family. Your father was a rabbi and uh, you went into this different type of career. And um, I'm wondering, was there a show or a script you were writing or a person you were working with that when you did this, you, you had that aha moment and you said, "Yeah, this is what I want to do this."
1: yeah, you know it's interesting. Um, Dad came from an orthodox background because that's just uh, the world that he his came. generation uh, came from. And so he was steeped in the um, the academic training. he spoke several languages fluently, including Aramaic, because that's the world he grew up in. But in his professional life, he was uh, a liberal clergyman who was very pragmatic in his approach. And he wasn't really about dogma at all. He was very much about what we call Tikkun Olam, which is Hebrew for healing the world, repairing the world, social justice. Um,
0: So you're following in his footsteps.
1: So that's where I was going with this thought that um, I did value from an early age, um, a responsibility to do what I could mm-hmm. to heal the world. Beautiful. Um, and so when I look at the work that I've, or the path of my work and the people that I choose to work with, and I I, I don't think my work is separate from my life. No. Um, it's really about, doing what I can to lift the people around me and the situations around me, um, which heals me and lifts me. I do believe that we rise and fall together. Um, It's a more indigenous viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, In the Western, culture we've been raised in modern times with the archetype of the the person that's going to come and save us. The, the, um, the superpower, the um, messianic individual that will fix it for us. I don't, I think we've gone as far as we can with that. And especially with the resources, tools, and weapons at our disposal, it's quite dangerous to give individuals that much power and control. I think that a much more purposeful, context is it takes a village to raise a child, that a community together can lift a community. Um, And there are certainly indigenous groups where if you look at their mythology and their um, spiritual practices, it's about the collective, which doesn't mean that the individual isn't important and special and responsible for his or her own piece of that puzzle it doesn't take the pressure off oh well the community's going to do it so i don't i don't have to vote i don't have to go do my part no 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 you you actually have a bigger responsibility because you are part of something that doesn't work without
0: you but you don't work without the whole so isn't there a story i i heard from you that i'd love for you to share with our listeners uh, with a forty-foot semi truck.
1: Yeah, so um, <laughs> one of the you're very sweet. I have so many stories like this, but this is just the first one. So I'll I'll start with that. When when I started producing television, I was doing um, a, a program for PBS, a national news magazine for PBS, and we were doing we were looking at various uh, topics, social justice topics. One of them was welfare reform. Another was um, healthcare, which was an issue, I guess it was 25, almost 30 years ago. It certainly is still an issue. Still an issue. Right. And um, there was a story that I was doing in Portland, Oregon about uh, the clinic of last resort. And it's a little bit of a long story, but- the, the. The, the gist of it is that um, there was a nurse practitioner who herself was struggling for supplies and things because people would come to her who had no health insurance, couldn't afford care, and um, she would help them anyway, because that was her.
0: She was a good. Orientation.
1: That was her part of the puzzle as far as she was concerned. And um, I was telling her story. And um, when it aired the next day, somebody had watched the broadcast about her story and was in a position to send her a 40 foot truck with supplies. Um, diapers, formula, medicine, over-the-counter medicine, um, things that she needed, um, rubber gloves and gauze and the the things that a a wealthy doctor's office or outpatient surgical place would have had, but she didn't. And um, it, it was worth, it changed her life and it changed the life of her clinic and it changed the life
0: of people she was helping. Um, and I understand the reason that that truck came was because, was because of your of show.
1: show. And right. It was because i done that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's right. To me, that's right. fabulous work. That's so I was great. able to amplify it because of the
1: team that I was on. I was just a small part of the team, but I, I liked her story. And I thought it mattered and. Um, all the pieces had to fit into place. I I don't think um, coincidence is not, uh, is just strategies we we don't quite see uh, Mm -hmm. completely. I I think in this case, Um, it wasn't because I had any personal power. I was just part, I was one of the pieces of this complicated, strategy to, to help those people that she helped. And in fact, she would say that she wasn't powerful. She was just the vessel for the healing to these people. And and the people would say, well, they're not powerful, but the mom needed to help the baby because the baby needed to grow up to be the teacher that was going to help. It's just... We're all in this together.
0: That sounds like community to me. Yeah, right. Uh, We're all
1: connected.
0: Yes, you were all connected and you did your part. But had you not done that, I do not believe she would have received the amount of support that she got in this 40-foot truck. She would still be getting the small little donations. So it's media and doing things like this can really affect it's like a ripple out into the water. It really can affect in a very big right. way because those, those, those children that didn't have much now have diapers, that now have wipes, that have things that regul- some people that, that's not, not, not difficult for them to obtain because they have the money. But if you don't have the money, that's a very big challenge raising your child. There's a lot of work to do and nothing really
1: solves it. When I was doing um, a project for a uh, called uh, child brides in America about for underage forced marriage. When we started working on that project, I guess it was maybe two years ago. Underage marriage was legal in all fifty states. These weren't stories about recent immigrants from other cultures where people married young. This mm-hmm. was wealthy white Christian houses in middle America, completely what you would educated, where 13-year-old girls were being forcibly married to their 30-year-old rapists so the rapists could avoid jail time. Now, there are all kinds of reasons or things you can point to with how did it get to that. Communities are behind that. It's it's generational abuse, it's generational poverty, it, it's um, outdated laws that are not um, brought to the present moment. By the time we went to air, so while we were shooting, we strategically, Worked. And while we were doing our work, two states passed legislation to protect these young girls and young boys, but mostly it was young girls. So and they did they passed that legislation because they knew we were about to put a spotlight on it. Mm-hmm. And it was national, international, A.
0: Um. What wonderful work. And
1: you could look at that and say, 48 states still had no protection or not nearly enough protection for these 10-year-old little girls giving birth on their own, alone, abandoned, literally abandoned by the people that should have protected them, their family, their church, their community. But... In two states, the children were protected or better protected. It's a piece of it. You know, my dad would say, Moses stood looking out at the promised land and he wasn't allowed to go to, into the promised land. It, it had to be, a, a, he was a piece of the puzzle. He brought them to that moment but then someone else had to take over. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about this all the time. He said, it's not over when I'm gone or when you're gone. We all have, we all have to do our bit. Just be, the Talmud says that uh, the um, commentary, the Jew, the commentary on, uh, on um, the Jewish sacred, uh, writings It said you you you're not responsible for the whole piece but that does not absolve you from your responsibility
0: to move the solutions forward so um I think your dad would be very where wherever he is resting in peace I I think he must be watching and being so proud of the work you're doing because you're dealing with so many different areas that you're shining a light on. And, you know, this is, this is the form is media. And you're doing it in a place where it's reaching the most amount of people. And this is all incredible. It's very wonderful work I feel kind of funny going back to the paranormal when we're talking about the social justice, and the and the other things but I did want to steer us back to a haunting, sure, because sure. I didn't get to hear what experiences you had if anything where you took things home with you or uh what experiences came from you know uh you know this will be right before the last episode right and uh i i found them all riveting And I'm wondering, did you go home and have riveting things or how it feels on, you know, I know some of these are on the set. Some of these you're dealing directly with the people. Right, right. A little bit more about that.
1: So I always feel profoundly honored when someone trusts me to tell their story. Yes. And um, I'm very grateful when they do that. If that nurse practitioner in that PBS story years ago, hadn't let go of her fear and just shared with me why her work was important. I wouldn't have been able to um, create a story for the program that was as compelling as it was because she was telling her story. I just gave her an opportunity to be heard, but she brought it as it were. And so um the people that are speaking on these programs are often reticent to do that because the nature of a lot of this kind of programming is sort of titillating. It it's uh, it focuses on a uh, on a negative aspect because there's a belief at the various networks that that's what people want to watch. I'm not convinced that's what they want to watch. I think think viewers are more sophisticated than we give them credit for, but it is a collaboration and I'm grateful that the networks want to tell these stories at all. And I'm grateful that they want to, to let me tell the stories. And I'm grateful that the people whose stories are to be told let me negotiate that. I mean, we're in the entertainment business. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a documentary or a feature film or a book or a poem or a podcast, we're here to entertain. But entertaining doesn't mean it needs to be junk. Um, Entertainment can be enlightening, nourishing, like that teacher that sparked an interest in us as a kid. Yeah, sure, it's school, but It doesn't have to be boring. It can be exciting. There there can be something. And these stories are very compelling. The people that we speak to absolutely believe what they've gone through. And in fact, one of the first things they almost always do when I sit down and I'm the camera's ready and, okay, do you have any questions for me? And they ask me, do you believe this? Do you believe in this story?
0: They must wonder if you think they're crazy.
1: Right, because so many people do, which is why it's hard for them to speak. And, and in fact, many people in their families or their friends, and they've learned because a, a lot of environments aren't um, conducive to that. Or uh, on the other spectrum, if they come from a very uh, certain kinds of religious backgrounds say that it's a sin, it's satanic, it's evil. And so not only is it not worthwhile, it's actually harmful. So they sit down with me and I'm not a a psychic. I don't see and hear things the way they do but I do believe that they believe it and I see the effects that it has and I do believe there's more going on than we can understand. I I know from my own science that uh, we don't, we're not done exploring. So that's how I start the that process with them. Now, the story that ends up getting told for the most part is the darkness in the story for a haunting, because that's the that's the story that a haunting is. But there's actually when we do the miniseries podcast, we can get into this more, Gail. But I I don't think there are quite a few very gifted. Um paranormal investigators and um, people who experience paranormal who feel very strongly in good and evil. Mm-hmm. I actually don't think that it's that clear-cut. I, th- I think that there is balance in the same way that atoms have negative and positive charges and are attracted, like attracts like. But I think that it is not so intractable as that's evil that's good and even for my social justice work people perpetrate horrible acts on each other and on themselves sometimes but i very rarely encountered a person that was innately evil they're broken they're mistreated it's like i look at the 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 rescue animals that are feral and they weren't born that way, those animals, they were taught that by experience. Trauma. Trauma. And what's so incredibly moving to me is when a dog overcomes that and is trusting of a human being again, after everything that a human being did to that animal I feel that way about some of the adults I talked to that learned to love and have children of their own when they as children were so horribly traumatized and I talked about this a lot with my team on the child marriage those those sexual predators almost always were victims of abuse themselves it's mm-hmm. generational it it, it doesn't ju- somebody isn't just born Abusive. Abusive like that. I mean, every so often, okay. But most crime, most criminals are a reflection of their trauma. And it doesn't excuse their responsibility for their actions because many more people grow up from those traumatized environments and don't become serial killers, don't become abusers. They find other ways to heal themselves and the world around them. So it it, it doesn't absolve the, the criminals from their responsibility, but it's more complicated than that. It, mm-hmm. it, you can't write off people as evil. And a lot of, um, The paranormal stories are really about profound brokenness and profound healing Mm -hmm. so that it's like um, Mr. Rogers said in the in times of of crisis look for the helpers, you know the the stories that are uplifting the people, you don't know what you're capable of in terms of good and in terms of strength until you're tested until you have an opportunity to show that strength and the courage that some of these children had to be open of mind and open of spirit and open of heart to the experience of their lives as they as it comes their way is um really astounding mm-hmm. Having said all that, weird stuff was happening behind the scenes all the time. And, I, and like I said, I'm not, I, I'm not someone who would say, oh, I'm, I, since a child, I've seen dead people. I, no, I, I'm like science scientists are my heroes. My father was a clergyman, but he was really a teacher. He was not, if you asked him, do you believe in God? His first response would be, how did you define God? And his definition of God was something closer to uh, a scientific sense of um, physical order in the cosmos kind of thing. He did not believe in a, a conscious old man that looked like him on a, in a chair uh, saying, <laughs> Rothman, two points, that was good. You helped the old lady across. He looked at that kind of old liturgy as poetry, as um as art um he was really not he was really focused on we don't know what's going to happen but we know we're here now so let's make the world a better place now let's be kind to each other now let's heal each other now and what happens happens I don't know. And actually he, I I can go on record because he said this publicly. He thought nothing happened when you died, um, that you just ceased to exist the same way you, you, he felt he did not exist before he existed and he couldn't quite wrap his head around it, but that's, that was his take on it. His, so his emphasis was, okay, here we are. We create heaven or hell here. This
0: is what we, we do. Did you share any of the? I don't know if he was still alive when you were having. I don't think he was when you were having these experiences, re, uh, interviewing the people with a hauntings, so you wouldn't have been able to share that with so him. So he
1: he died in April of 2020, right at the start of COVID.
0: So had you shared any of these? So you were going to tell us about the things that followed you home. Or right what so things were happening as you were interviewing these people and their stories
1: so so much happened that I'm actually actively trying to convince a network uh, to give me an opportunity to tell this story on television what was going on with the crews behind the scenes from all of this but and it was it was at times deeply terrifying uh, and palpable and real. Um, But there was also a lot about it that was
0: very healing. I think it must've been opening the crew and other people around who might've been skeptics. They might've started to get feelings like, hey, maybe I don't think I'll be as skeptical about this not necessarily about the show, but about what was going on with them during the show. Because right. they're, they're filming, but then there's the behind the scenes. So do you have one instance you might want to share with us? So, um,
1: sure. Here's here's one small
0: piece of it. Okay. Because I know Spittle. we have to wait till the show comes out for the rest of them. Well,
1: th- <laughs> right. This has nothing to do with a haunting in terms of, what you see on camera. This is right. simply what I was experiencing, what my very small crew, because we we started shooting during COVID. And so we wanted to keep our crew very small in order to minimize the chance of um, infecting e- each other or our um, story subjects. So we would go to a community And we would, the the production company would rent an Airbnb location, a house, something um, where we, each of the crew, there would be three of us, a a camera person, a a director of photography, um, an audio person that also did our digital media and me. So just literally three people, and maybe a production assistant who would be local, where each person had their own bedroom and bathroom, so that we could be separate, COVID separate, and a room for each of our interviewees to use to change what into their whatever they were going to be interviewed and whatever and the the location had nothing to do with the story we were shooting it just needed to be convenient because the five or six people that we, we were on camera interviewing they needed to be able to drive there conveniently so we'd fly out to California for uh, the episode daydreams and nightmares um, And we needed to be somewhere where all of our story subjects could drive. So it wasn't that we were shooting in the location that was haunted or in the person's home because that piece of it would be in recreation. That would happen there. We only wanted the interview, the the real person that experienced it in that space. So we were in um, California and we rented an Airbnb at the edge of an almond farm and uh so an almond orchard so rows of very small almond trees bigger than a bush but not as big as a whole like an oak tree or I I don't know if you're familiar with
0: um yeah almonds are I think the largest cash agricultural crop in California
1: so so this house that we were in it was just a regular house it wasn't like we, we didn't say, okay, let's stay in a place that's haunted. We just, right. the production said, <laughs> here's a, and it was hard to find a five bedroom, five bathroom place that had what we call looks. We needed five different looks in the house so that each of the interviewee backdrops would look, look a little different. So could we shoot two different directions in the living room, for example, for two different interviews, then we take the camera to the basement. Is there another look? It, it's just so we have a variety of backdrops. It has nothing to do with the story that we're shooting. So we didn't have a lot of choices, but they found this one house. Two different people who we were interviewing. So the interviewees would be uh, any number of things. They would be either the people that were sensitive, that were experiencing it, or it could be a paranormal investigator that may or may not be sensitive, or it could just be somebody who's a trained expert but doesn't personally feel these things or um a clergyman that's coming in to do some sort of deliverance of the home if it's a, if that's appropriate or whatever so different kinds of people and these interviewees we spaced out so they would never interact because of covid we didn't want two interviewees in the space at the same time because of covid so we put in like half hour breaks. So nobody ever came at the same time. We shoot over two days, two separate women. It was always the women, which is interesting. Two separate women came to that location. And when I sat down for the interview and I, we were just talking or chatting or whatever, both women in that location said, by the way, there's a, a woman outside the building standing there outside the door. And I said, oh, tell me about it. And one of the women, a, a spiritualist uh, minister, so she is absolutely uh, sensitive and she was involved in this story because of her uh, abilities. She says, well, the woman, uh, she's white, not that long ago, 10, 15 years, like modern dress, could see the dress, um, pretty youngish, I know she's just standing there. I said, well, does it have anything to do with our story? No, no, I just, you know, just not for nothing. She's outside your building room. So, you know, I'd look at the cinematography like, okay, uh, whatever, <laughs> And And um, on the, the the final day when the photographer, the, the DP director of photography was handing back the keys to the uh, Airbnb owner, uh, he said, you know, By the way, two were doing this show, it's for Discovery and some psychics were there, and two separate people said a woman was standing out in the, sort of in the, in the yard there by the orchard, do you, do you know, it doesn't have to do with our story, do you know anything, he said, well, I heard a woman maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, was burned to death in the, in the field. Oh, so he came back into the, the van because we had a long drive back to our San Francisco airport and we were like, okay, well, hmm. um, and the, the director of photography and the audio guy and I, none of us are psychic, So we were all like, okay, well, and that was our first, our, the first story that I was doing that where I was deeply involved. And we didn't talk about it, we didn't tell anybody. We're just like, okay, well, whatever. And it was weird that two unconnected people said that same thing. She was there, but okay. And I didn't think anything of it. Fast forward, (laughs) wait, wait, fast forward couple of months. Stuff happens, but I'm in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. We are Again, at a b and b it has nothing to do with the story. Actually, the story involved is um, I think it was Pennsylvania, but New Jersey, this location was convenient for everybody, bah, bah, bah. Very convenient. And so um, and, um, but, and we're still in COVID, so I'm still one at a time interviewees. And there's a guy who is um, a psychic. Who uh, is connected to the story that we're shooting the interviews about? And I I don't have any contact with these people ahead of time because our schedule is so tight. The there are other people on the team that uh, do the pre-interviews and everything, and I don't connect with them until they arrive at the location. And I've read the notes from our uh, from the team, but I I have too much to do to do that prep work, so. Um, and I've started to, I've, I've um, gotten used to meeting them outside because once we're inside, I have a mask on, and I liked them to see my face uh, before we do the interview. So it's a nice day; it's warm out, and there's a little patio area. And I come out, and I see he's, this guy is um, coming, coming up the driveway. Nice guy. I don't really know anything about him except that he was a psychic helping this family. And we sit down and uh, we start to talk. And he said, I, I, I'm sorry, I just have to. There's a woman behind you surrounded by fire. Does that mean anything oh. to you? And I said, huh, tell me more. Cause I'm all big on validating because I don't wanna, you know, and Fine. he doesn't, this is not his episode. The thing in California, was three episodes earlier. He said, well, she's showing me rows of plants, I, like planting in a row. Does that mean anything to you surrounded by fire? I said, okay, now, now I'm gonna tell you, cause I hadn't thought about it for months. I said, and I told him the story about California. And he said, okay, the truth is the minute I turned into the driveway, this woman was banging on the front of my car, screaming, No one's listening to me. She's not paying attention to me. Why aren't they helping me? Wow. And I said, I can't explain how you but it was very specific. And I said, describe her. And he said, Well, she's modern dress. It's not ancient dress. She's white. She's blonde, pretty. She's just, she's really upset. She's very frustrated. And I and I said, I can't, I'm not ignoring her. I don't see her. And he said, She thinks you can. There's something about you. She thinks that you're sensitive. And I said, honestly, if I, if I could, I would, but I don't, he said, I'll take care of it. I'll help her when we're done today. Don't worry. But so then I started to talk to him about this. And this is Scott Davis, who Ah. I wanted to introduce you
0: to. Great. I'm looking forward to it. And
1: Scott said that it may be because this small team of three people had been working together so intensively and we'd been bringing people who were sensitive into our group over a period of months and because we were not closed and judgmental to what they were saying that um, these entities thought that we could also help them proceed and help them. And he did eventually um, later that because I checked afterwards and he said to her, you know, they, can, you, they can't hear you or see you. I'm sorry. I don't know anything about your story. You're going to have to go back to the orchard and find someone who does. He said, you know, if, if we had The wherewithal we could go there and try to investigate that. More of the work that I do is actually active investigation, which I think is really fascinating, where it's not about stories that were finished. It's about there's something going on, let's figure it out. And then things really open up. I had a a computer completely crash on me. Um, I was, I mean, the GPS kept sending me in the middle of the night to a dead end road with a cemetery, even though the GPS had worked perfectly several times earlier that day, sending me back to where I wanted. But when we finished our shoot, it was in this, these woods that were, there was some very powerful stuff that was happening. My computer completely crashed the hard drive, never to be recovered, out of the blue, no reason why. And then I've I've got my GPS trying to get back to the hotel and no matter how many times I put it in, it keeps directing me back to this dead-end cemetery. And the psychic who I'm driving back to the hotel, he's like, this isn't good K. This is good They <laughs> I'm like, I know, I know, I know.
0: Well, Lloyd Auerbach, who was on our show um, a little while ago, speaks about, he said, people think that when you go to a haunting, not meaning your show, but a haunted place, they think like the ghost is hanging around there all the time. He said, ghosts do not hang around there all the time. They go to different places, which would make sense that this ghost followed you to this particular spot. That doesn't mean that ghost can't zip back to the other place all in the same day, because time doesn't matter in the ghost world. It's not the same kind of time. Like we think of,
1: right. I didn't have people following me back to my home. You know, I, I really again, it's just like the trauma i i the trauma interviews I try to put myself in a an emotional spiritual place when I'm working on the story, when I sit down to write it, when I speak with them, when I go to do the interview, when I come back that mm-hmm. is as loving and kind a a space as I can create for my story for for me to tell this story to um, i I hesitate to use the word channel because that's presumptuous. I'm not channeling in a paranormal, but in order to do the story justice, mm-hmm. i I try to put myself in a good mental place that doesn't have to do with recognizable rituals or chanting or something that people would understand although i'm very grateful when people give me lovely scented oils or a lovely stone and say take this i i why not it's lovely why not you know it's not going to hurt mm-hmm. um so i i try to you could say protect myself and i certainly Um, ask the people who are sensitive to protect the crew. Um, I'm mindful that there may be also some mental illness involved and I need to be careful not to trigger these people. They're talking about trauma and my own background in in this sort of experimental and therapeutic psychology tells me to to be mindful Mm -hmm. and present and careful and not Uh, trigger them more than it is necessary, and be responsible. Um,
0: That's That's a wonderful thing, because I don't think all people that are interviewing or making films or doing documentaries are approaching sensitive people with that attitude when they're doing the work. And I think that is probably also giving your work, the fact that you're saying you're not a channel, you're not psychic, la la la. I tend to disagree with that. (laughs) I think that you are an open person that can receive information and that I think it's your intuition that's been guiding you all along,
1: picking out
0: which shows you should accept, helping you go down this other way. I think there's a there's another another force with you that's guiding you along.
1: Maybe or or you could say there are a lot of good choices and a lot of good roads. And we don't really have control over all of these routes. We do have control over the way we walk them. So there were two very serious car accidents that happened during the course of this work. And I was a passenger in both, I was not driving. And, the cars were totaled in both instances. And I was actually hurt in both of them in a way that the other crew was that fine. Was recently, or you mean? So one was during the um, underage marriage one, mm-hmm. and the other was in California with this story right before we were about to be done. And um, in the California one, I actually ended up with broken ribs, bruised um, Mm. lungs and I flew home and then went to the emergency room because I really wanted to get out of that town that, that I just couldn't breathe, literally couldn't breathe there. And probably that wasn't a smart thing to get on a plane, right? You know, 12 hours after the accident, but in any case, um, you know, people were like, oh my God, Kay, you're so unlucky. And I thought. Unlucky? because i i I felt we could talk about that another time, but I felt very Lucky. protected. I felt like something did not want this story told. And I was going to tell this story no matter what. And I had help. i I literally left the car accident and went to finish the interview. I had a one hour interview left because (laughs) I thought that that was important. And I was having trouble breathing because I didn't know I had a broken rib at that point or bruised lungs, but no one was gonna tell me that I wasn't gonna get to tell this story. By that point I was invested. I was gonna tell this story. Now other people did have problems, especially some of the, the sensitive psychic people Uh, There were some pretty serious attacks that happened to them across different um, entities. When I did the Curse of Lizzie Borden, um, we had a couple of very, very gifted people who were very connected, um, and they were better prepared to protect themselves with um, their own teams uh, Mm -hmm. offsite. And protecting each other and part of what was really compelling about what we were getting in the broadcast was one sensitive was getting signs of protection for another uh, sensitive person that they would never have known about but they said, you know, it it was just a lot of. Cross validating that was Mm -hmm. absolutely undeniable. Um, And so the the the. What I got out of this experience with Scott and the the woman who was burning, I mean, hopefully she went and I mean, was it real? Was it not real? I don't know, but how how could all those people? I think know it was that? real,
0: just so, you know, from my right. I
1: mean, how could all those people know that? But Scott was so specific. and he's he's a police officer in his real life. He does this as a a, a gift, you know, um, he doesn't, he's not in it for power or glory. He really is trying to use his abilities for good. Um, And so I reached out to him later on as things started to escalate across episodes. And because he knew nothing about the later episodes, the later stories, and because he's somebody who's like, don't tell me anything. Let me just see what I pick up and i called him and he wasn't where i i was somewhere else i was in a different state from him from me whatever he knew nothing about what i was shooting and i called him and i said something's going on i can't explain it anymore i don't know what to do um he was absolutely able to validate what other people who were sensitive who came to that location who again was like you know, there's something going on upstairs. you know, separate, not connected, not connected to the story we were telling, but um, not for nothing that upstairs room, there's this, you know, and describing the thing. And it was all, and then I was having um, recurring things that were not deniable. So it's not, oh, I have a feeling or I'm I'm a little, ner-. it was just, there's no way this is possible without some other explanation. And I don't understand how those dots connected, but Scott connected those dots and that's what it, so, whoa. So that yeah. to be, maybe, maybe in about nine months, we'll have had a chance to, um, to get to
0: those stories. The fact that there's enough stories that happen during these uh, haunting and other shows you've done, that there's enough stories for you to create a possible show about it, is that in itself should say how over the top the amount of things happened that happened during this. It wasn't one or two incidents. It's enough to make a show. Right. It,
1: it was. It and, was that they were so cross validated by people who had no connection, and names that are not. Com- you know, it's one thing. Okay, we're at Lizzie Borden's house, and we're coming up with the names Mary and John and William. Okay, well. Everyone in 1850 was named Mary, John, or William. No, yeah. but <laughs> but the the names were not. And then, Scott says, "Can I tell you one more story that's really yes?"
0: And then, okay, we'll... this is
1: not scary. So no, here's no, no, I don't mind. Okay, here's an example of a story that probably would never make a show because it's not
0: scary. That's how, that's how mine are. They never fit the but scary thing.
1: But how lovely and and. For the most part, the most more, most of what Scott tells me he does is actually not really frightening. Like this stuff that was in, that I dragged him into, he he was like, "That's the weirdest, scariest thing I've ever." I mean, <laughs> so we're talking about whatever, and I really like him, and uh, he's just a lovely man, and he's got two young kids, and it's interesting. I do think that um, sensitivity is, there's a genetic component to it, just like there's a genetic component to other kinds of sensory abilities. There's no question in my mind, I'm not surprised that it runs in families, not only because of the nurturing aspect that some people may have had a grandmother who quietly said, no, it's okay. That's just grandpa. Don't worry. You know, but that's the way it is. Right, but even in families, people who are adopted, who have no connection, they still have a genetic predisposition for perfect pitch, or, or a musical, whatever, they have a predisposition for these sensitivities, which makes sense, it runs in family that people have good eyesight, or, or can be athletic. I, um, that's certainly genetically not in my family tree. The <laughs> athleticism. But uh, we're good but at languages in my family. I, I, we have an ear for language. My father did. And and I, I think I did growing up. I pick up on languages very easily. Um, I, I think that, that that's, our, so anyway, so I'm talking to Scott and we're doing so much on Zoom and I'm talking to him about something else or whatever. And he says, I'm sorry, I have to say, Um, We've been talking a couple of times and I, I, there's this guy named Eugene, and he keeps popping up every time I talk to you. Uh, Does that mean anything to you? And I'm like, "Uh, no, Uh, tell me more. He said, well, he's about 80. He's wearing a red sweater. um, And he's showing me the third floor on your building and an urn of cremated remains on the mantle. And I said, oh, um, and I live in an old building. The building was from 1904, lots of history. I live in Manhattan, lots of people around. Um, and uh, he, and I said, oh, well, I, I hope it's not haunting. He said, no, 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 I'm not getting a sense. He's not mad or evil or he just, he's hanging out. Um, and I said, well, okay. He said, why, why don't I come see what's going on in, in your, your building. So, um, he came and he found all kinds of things happening outside my door, no. <laughs> not good. And, but as we were talking, he said, and, and I, of course, because some of the people in my building know first, I was working on this alien thing Then I'm on the paranormal and some of them are, <laughs> like, what are you working on now. So I'm sitting outside with my dog and I'm saying, excuse me. Hi. Um, I know you live on the third floor. Do you, do you have any cremated remains in your apartment? Does the name Eugene mean anything? And they're kind of like, "Mm, uh, no. And uh, there's no Eugene in the building, but Scott said, no, I think Eugene is the cremated remains. So it could be somebody else who's like uncle Eugene or grandpa, couldn't find anything, nothing on the, no, I don't know, whatever. And he said, and and I keep also hearing the name Alvin, is there an Alvin, Eugene Alvin? No, okay. So um, I do some digging and and there are a couple of old people in the building that have lived here for 50, 60 years older mm. and um, a few are, are really good friends. And so I said, hey, does the name Eugene, Alvin, no, 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 I found a New York Times article from 1972 or 73. And it was the retirement party for the super who had been here for 23 years. And it was lovely. They were toasting him. And his name was Gene, Eugene, Aubin, A-U-B-I-N. And he retired, moved to Florida, and died. I don't know, at some point, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. And the neighbors that are the older neighbors were in that picture. I was like, hey, you guys, you were third time. Do you remember Gina? Oh, yeah. All oh, right. Yeah, Gene. Yeah, I think his name was Eugene, but he liked to be called Gene, Gene Almond. Yeah, he was lovely. He was just, he was like part of the woodwork. Now, I don't know. And I said, did he wear a red sweater? They were like, I don't know, whatever. Was he cremated? I don't know, whatever. But Scott was like, well, I don't know the name Aubin. If I heard the name Aubin, I would think Alvin. Yeah, okay. He said, he just really liked it in the building. And he came back because this was home. He's not haunting. He's just hanging out. He likes, you know, to see what's going on. Now, Eugene Aubin, Eugene Aubin, Eugene Alvin, I'm sorry, that's,
0: that's very, and and it
1: wasn't like he came up with 25 names. No, that's really specific. Now we have not yet figured out what the cremated remains third floor red sweater is. And we may not, we may not know. I don't know. Um, somebody lived on the third floor for decades, decades and decades, but they both passed away and the the apartment was completely renovated, got renovated. So I don't know how we would track that. You know, not every clue is relevant, but um, that's a lovely, I, I'm happy
0: that Jean is hanging out in the building and still sort
1: of watching over us
0: this is what i'm saying is uh, that's not a story that you know uh tv wants to put up because there's nothing scary about it in fact it's quite comforting right and it also supports this uh experiences that people have where someone returns to a place that they really loved being. They're not there to disturb you in any way. They're there because they love the surrounding or the whether it's in nature or in a building itself. They're comfortable, it's home.
1: they comfortable. And I said to Scott, "Does he is he stuck? Does he need to have help crossing over? And Scott said, no, I don't think he's lingering. Uh, people can um, cross over and re- visit and return back. And it doesn't mean that they're stuck or, or trapped or haunted in the way that some of the entities that we were exploring in the series were. Gene just liked being in the building and some of the people he knew are still here and the kids are grown up and have kids of their own, but the building for the most part is intact. It's an old pre-war building and the stairs are the stairs, and the windows right. are the windows, and the view is the view, and the trees are a little taller. But he just he likes the vibe. I, I don't know. I, you know.
0: Well, I think this is a good story for us to end on because we're 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 over our we're we're at our our time to to kind of close up. But I I'm so glad that you shared this because. Uh, it's important for people to know as they're watching a haunting that there's all this other stuff behind the scenes that they should know about, which I'm grateful you shared. And um, I just wanna ask you if there's anything else now that we're winding up, did you wanna mention anything about the two upcoming, you know, like just, if you could just say a couple minutes so that our listeners can enjoy a hauntings and see some of your work or go back into the, the media and find other shows we spoke about. But there's two shows you have that are coming up. So if right, you could right. just tell us the name of the show and about you know, June or July or fall right. or whatever, they'll be coming so that the listeners will know that there's a lot more exciting shows that you're coming up with.
1: Right, so the next uh, project that I'm uh, producing is actually season two of a show that already exists. And because I had nothing to do with season one, I can say without uh, hesitation, it is beautifully created. The stories are deeply moving and it actually is quite purposeful. Um, And if you watch season one, there have been updates recently with cards at the end that show uh, the positive impact that the airing of the stories ha- has had on the lives of some of the people um, mentioned. And it's um, it's not a paranormal show. It's uh, considered true crime, social justice. That's sort of the bucket. And it's on Sundance uh, Sundance TV and AMC+. It's the same thing now a lot of the networks are simultaneously airing uh, traditional broadcast on AMC+. Uh, Sundance and then also AMC Plus and it's called It Couldn't Happen Here and it's about the reverberations of crimes that happen in small towns where you'd think oh that couldn't happen here it couldn't happen here it's it's beautifully done it's very respectful um it it's going to be eye-opening for quite a lot of people. Uh, It it is yet another example of how our human condition is complicated and that when we look at stories in the media, um, a lot of times people are made out to be Black or white, literally Mm -hmm. and figuratively, but the truth is much more nuanced um, that... um, Crime uh, is a tragedy that can affect many more people and many more communities than just the immediate uh, people. And there are calls to action, as as it were, um, as part of each of these uh, that help viewers. I certainly was not aware of some of the legislation that needed updating. I vote, and I'm going to vote um, in a more informed way now, understanding that um, some of the criminal code is quite complicated. Um, Understanding the limitations of witness um, reports, eyewitnesses. Um,
0: When will will that air?
1: So you can watch season one now. That has nothing to do with me, but it's really wonderful. Great. Season two, we're only starting to work on it uh, right now. Mm -hmm. So probably not until late summer or early fall. Um, but you don't have to wait for my episode season one is is just as good uh, as anything uh, that we're going to do so feel free to write to do that. And the other project is a project that is the working title is deep down we're still early in on it. It's actually a scripted piece. Um, that I created and brought to um, colleagues of mine to work on. It's based on a graphic novel that we're writing now that the creator of Deadpool uh, is involved in, Fabian, he's lovely. Um, And the artist who's working on the drawings is almost done. We'll publish that graphic novel, hopefully in 2022 and soon after leverage that into a TV series that, interestingly enough, also looks at what I'd call future tech. And my um, my request to our team is fantastical things happen. And the answer is never aliens. <laughs> um, so it can be future tech, it can be us in the future coming back, it can be um, perceptive abilities that we um, develop that we we don't have access to now. It can be any of those things, but it can't be aliens because aliens, it's like that somebody's gonna come from outside and save us kind of thing. That's what, not, I'm not saying aliens, I'm not making passing judgment on whether aliens are real or not real or whatever, but uh, in this s- series of stories, the, the story characters are responsible for their own situation, their own destiny and their own solutions. So that's called Deep Down. Um, and that's, you'll, there we'll you do another it. podcast before that we, one airs.
0: Exactly. We'll yeah. ha- definitely have to do that. So I want to thank you so much for being here today with us. And um, our listeners, remember you can watch the last episode of A Haunting, and you have future shows to be watching that Kay Rothman is producing and you have shows that we've told you about in the past that you can check out. We hope you've enjoyed yourself here today, listening to Kay's explanations of what goes on in the producer's world. And we hope that you'll like, subscribe, share, comment, any communications with you, we'll be writing back to you. It just takes me a little while, but I'll always answer. And as you can hear in today's stories, we talked a lot about stories that heal. So have a wonderful week and we'll see you again in 2 weeks in our bi-monthly shows. Have a great day and look forward to you seeing look forward to seeing you soon. Bye-bye.